All right, we are back. Welcome to the Retirement Plan Playbook. Uh, I think we have a really fantastic show today. Today we're going to talk about the personal wealth destroyers, things that really can kill your financial plan. And I'm excited for the topic because it's something that we've experienced seeing so many times with so many different clients. So we'll get into those today. I'm your host, Brent Pasqua, founder of RPA Wealth Management. I'm here with Matthew Thiel, certified financial planner, and Joshua Winterswike, certified financial planner. So to kind of kick this off, I'm kind of curious, one of your guys' most beloved events is starting to have fans back. LAFC is, I think, kicking off their fan season this weekend. You guys going to be at the bank? Yeah, I think so. It's looking that way, Brent. Uh, I'm really excited. So I think I mentioned on the last pod I went to a baseball game. Baseball is really boring. So like by the third inning, all I could think about was going back to the Bank of California. So yeah, it's going to be a, a fun event for sure. I'm really excited. It's just been too long. It's something that we've really fell in love with LAFC soccer in downtown LA. And so uh, getting the notification that um, as season ticket holders, we were selected to be part of the um, allocated fans that are going to be allowed at the stadium on Saturday is going to be really fun. They sent us a complete checklist of all of the restrictions. So they're well prepared for this event. And I'm just really excited. Do we have any of the family pictures that we've all had there with our families and wives? at the bank on any of our social media uh i don't think so maybe we can throw some up in in uh as this topic goes so you guys can kind of see our history of of us at the bank yeah that's a good idea you know before you pivot here's one thing i was thinking with josh i think at least one of us because there's another season ticket holder has been at the bank for every game right like there might have been maybe one date we missed for a bachelor party or something but other than that i think we've been to every single home game at least one of us yeah i think so that's probably pretty fair i think Besides the bachelor party we were all at, which I think was mine. Yeah. I think we gave up seats that day. But yeah. other than that, we've been to every, every game pretty- since the, the, the team started four years ago now. Yeah, and I think it's cool that you know, we're going to this reopen. I'm just excited to be a part of it. Because not everyone got selected, so feel a little special that we're going to be able to go. Yeah, for anybody who lives in Southern California, I think it's a premier event to go to. I mean, the soccer games are awesome to watch, and the, the facility, the stadium is beautiful, and it's brand new. So, Well, here's something crazy. Lakers are coming back, too, around the same time as LAFC for in-person. I was looking at secondary market ticket prices. You go to a Laker game at Staples for cheaper than you can go to an LA, the LAFC right now. LAFC is about fifty to sixty dollars more per seat than Lakers. Yeah, when you told me that, I was like amazed to see that, especially like after you know the pause and championship season. But you could just see how popular LAFC has become and how popular soccer has become in Southern California. Yeah, it should be a great weekend. All right, let's get into the hot take headlines. The largest crypto custodian, Coinbase, came public, and we've talked about Coinbase in the past. For those that aren't familiar, Coinbase allows people to trade digital currencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. The offering priced at 250 a share, that's what it came out, and it opened for trading though at $380, trading up to 429 and then crashed back down to 310 uh, Matt, let's start with you. I mean, what's your take sort of on this Coinbase going public? Big moment for crypto, right? Big moment for the Bitcoin, the Ethereum crew. Um, the people with the laser eyes on their social media profiles. In a way, it's, it's kind of funny, though, because the whole thing with the crypto crew is decentralization. But here's Coinbase going public, and it's actually a centralized U.S. exchange that cooperates with the government. If you're trading there, you're going to get your 1099s and pay taxes on your Bitcoin profits and your Ethereum profits. So kind of funny from that regard. Um, but the company looks incredible, highly profitable. 
Um, one of the better companies to come public in the last five years. Um, I did buy shares as I believe the two of you did. So we should disclose that. Um, so we own Coinbase. We already lost money on them. Yeah, yeah, we, we did. We did lose some money from the opening prints. But hey, you know what? Re really cool. I'm excited to see the company grow over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think it's also just really cool that the, um, we get to see the evolution of you know cryptocurrency being a part of this from such an early stage. Um, and I think that it is a, a way for, again, young investors to learn about another asset and have a platform to do it. Um, yes, it is centralizing it, like you said, Matt, a little bit, but I think it, it gives some more security, especially to some more wary investors. You know, there's going to be more regulations around Coinbase. But I also think that it's going to start a lot of competition, right? They're not going to be the only big player on the block anymore. You can see how profitable this company was and, you know, their, their platform. So it's going to promote a lot of competition in this space. They need to purchase BlockFi. BlockFi is coming up really hot on them. You know, the one where that gives you the interest and they'll give you lending against your Bitcoin and everything. And they have the credit card. Yeah, and the credit card. That Coinbase needs to purchase BlockFi. Yeah, I, they, I would agree. If they were smart, they would do that. And, and to put it in perspective, like what Coinbase is, is Coinbase is like the Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Robinhood of cryptocurrency. It's the platform you purchase these cryptocurrencies on. Exactly. That's a great analogy. It's the Charles Schwab of cryptocurrency. Yeah. And that's why you say when it gets sort of centralized now, it's you're going to this now public institution to purchase your cryptocurrencies that are going to report your year-end summaries for interest and so forth for taxation. Exactly. And so if you wanted to buy a cryptocurrency, but you don't want to actually buy the cryptos. This is another way, a, sort of a public way or back way into the position. Yep, a great way. It's like the people who during the, the gold rush were selling picks and shovels. Right. All right, so retail sales rose during the month of March by 9.8% compared to an expected economist estimate of 6.1%. Sporting goods, clothing, food, and beverage led the gains in spending and contributed to the best month for retail since May 2020, the gain of 18.3%, which came after the first round of stimulus checks. Uh, I guess, where do we start and what do you think? Oh, so do you remember back like three, four, five podcasts ago where we were talking about how, you know, one conversation we kept having with a bunch of clients, prospective clients, and everyone's how weak the economy was? Yes. All, all I'm going to say is we told you. Like everything is booming right now. You should not be concerned about the economy being weak. You should be concerned that the economy is getting too strong and too hot too fast because things are booming everywhere. And this number shows that. I also think, you know, this, the stimulus checks worked. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, those $1,400 payments, and this is where, you know, they are really showing the data that a lot of this money was being spent and that's good for our economy and you know you did say it this economy was doing well and it's now even more data to support that and we're seeing that come to life but um you know we did tell you so on this podcast so that, that, that feels good but yeah and i also just my take is stimulus worked and hopefully you know with everyone in this pandemic and all of this pent-up demand that this economy still continues to to do well and grow it just seems like people have that extra money in savings and they want to start spending it. And whether it's leisure or retail, I think that's probably where some of this money is going right now. Yeah, I, I agree. And then probably on the food scene too, as soon as, you know, with more restaurants coming online, um, I know food prices are a little higher and then travel as well. Just, you know, people are spending money. Yeah. And prices are getting more expensive. They're not getting cheaper right now. All right, let's get into the main talk, but let's get to the retirement planning corner. I think you know, what we wanted to establish with today's show is really going through some of the 
personal wealth destroyers, things that we've seen people make mistakes on and can really get you in some bad financial trouble. And not only can it get you in bad financial trouble, but it's really hard to get out of. And so today, let's really start to get into some of these things that are really bad for your, for your wealth and also can impact you long term. Now, the first one that we're going to start off with is credit card debt. How do people really get into credit card debt? I'll start with this one. Um... Just in with a quick stat. So the average credit card debt per borrower is about $6,200. So there is, you know, a pretty large amount of credit card debt that hangs around American households. And, you know, it starts with just the easy idea, which is spending above your means, right? We're, we are spending more than we are actually bringing in. And we're using a credit card to financing the excess discretionary income. You know, a lot of other things that relate to, you know, credit card debt or medical bills, emergencies that aren't planned for that come up. And just whenever your growth of income isn't as high as you expect it to be, right? We're we're a lot of times financing on credit cards because we expect to get a bonus or we expect to get a raise or our income to increase so we can support that a little excess spending credit card can just snowball. And we see it so much in our industry um, of people acquiring credit card debt and how it can just destroy wealth. To piggyback on that, credit card debt interest rates are outrageous. So you're just digging yourself an even bigger hole when you get into high credit card balances with these high interest rates. And it's just really, really hard to get out of. Yeah, I think the number one reason to me when I see someone get into credit card debt, I mean, there is the emergencies, right? Your your washer breaks, you have to buy a new washer. Well, you don't have the money, so you got to put it on credit card debt. But it's really simple. You're buying something you can't afford. So if you don't have the money, you can't afford it. And if you're putting it on a credit card, you don't have the money. You don't. You can't afford it. And to your point about interest rates, credit cards, what, 15 20%, Josh? Mm-hmm. It could be even higher, higher than 20%. Ton- Find me an investment that pays that. It's not out there. Okay. So that's why you don't put it on credit cards. Pay off your balance on a monthly. If you know, you're making a purchase and you have to pay it on a credit card and you know it's going to take you five, six payments to pay it off or more, you probably can't afford it. So save up a little bit more. So what are your guys' feelings beyond like, some of the best strategies to get out on credit card debt? Because I know Dave Ramsey is big in this arena. He has a lot of philosophies on it, which I think you know aren't always terrible, but... What are your strategies? If you go the, um, if you have a high enough credit score, I like the roll into personal loan strategy. Is that right on that one, Josh? You, so you could take, if you have multiple cards, you could roll in one personal loan, you should get a lower rate? Yeah, so you have a, you can, can do a consolidation personal loan, roll all of the credit card debt into one loan with a fixed payment, a fixed rate. That doesn't always work for everybody, though. No, it doesn't, but I think it gives you a little bit of breathing room. Not a bad strategy because, you know, you might have multiple credit cards. A lot of people have multiple credit cards, so rolling them all into one and having one payment is a, just a lot easier to manage. And so I think that it gives you a little bit more confidence going into this, you know, obstacle of paying it off with a little bit more confidence because you only have that one payment. What about some of the strategies of paying off the ones with a higher interest rate or, or the paying off the ones with the lowest balances first? Yeah, that's great. So those are two psychological ways to pay off the credit cards. Uh, mathematically, you'd most likely want to pay off the one with the highest rate first. Um, but it's been psychologically proven that if you pay off the one with the smallest balance first, it's kind of like getting a small win. And then you could keep going and working on your other cards. Because most people, what we find is if you have credit card debt, it's spread across multiple cards. Yeah. And I think that, you know, both strategies, you pick one and stick to it. They're both going to, if, if you're sticking to the plan, you know, are going to work. 
you know, the highest interest rate, that strategy is, you know, you're paying off the one that's costing you the most. But the snowball effects of picking the smallest one and moving on, you know, you, you have those small wins, like Matt said. So I do like both. I think it's more based on, you know, kind of personality and what your goal is. But, um, you know, picking the strategy and starting this journey of getting the debt paid off is the most important. And stay away from the like the tricky rewards cards. I mean, credit cards are enticing you to use them. Right. Um, so don't justify spending, you know, with earning rewards if you can't afford it. So first find out, and the first step of avoiding getting into credit card debt is find out if you can even afford it. We always go back to you know finding some sort of budgeting rule, have some awareness around your spending, and don't use uh, you know rewards from a credit card to justify spending. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the only real way to benefit from rewards is to pay it off every month. Yeah, I mean, you're off weighing your rewards if you're being charged interest by the credit card company. I mean, what is really then your net reward after you've paid them interest? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I think, you know, if you can't afford it and you're not in that snowball effect, I think there's two things here. If you are in that snowball effect, create a strategy that works for you. Uh, There's lots of strategies out there and then start chipping away. The other one is, is if, you know, you're in a position where you just have one credit card or two credit cards and you have some debt, pay it off every single month and have it auto paid off so you don't have to go in there and, remember, and remind yourself because if you do miss a payment that interest rate is going to get jacked up and you don't want that yeah you don't want the interest rate it can be just be so expensive i think on average like ten thousand dollars of credit card debt if you only made the minimum payment it's going to cost you about thirty thousand when you tack on the interest so just look at how much you're paying back to these credit card companies to finance just ten thousand dollars it's insane so true uh, the next one that we got into here is one I think that's really important. It's just a, a way of the times right now. It's in the media a lot. Uh, student loans without high earning degree. Uh, what are some factors that make student loan debt concerning? Uh, this is something I'm really passionate about, Brent. I'm glad you brought it up. The number one factor with student loans that really make them concerning is one, there's no time period. Um, so th- theoretically, your loan amount is infinite. Two, they have pretty high interest rates. And number three is if you file bankruptcy, you can't discharge it. And what I don't like seeing is people shaming other people online for like, you know, buying a $5 Starbucks or a $10 dinner every day or lunch, right? That comes out if you do the math to a couple thousand dollars a year, right? But yet you borrowed $100,000 to go to school XYZ at a 6.5% interest rate. And you're 100 grand in debt by the time you leave college and you have an English degree. So your interest on that student loan per year is more than that cup of Starbucks coffee every day or that bagel, whatever it is. So people need to stop thinking about, you know, cutting those 4 and $5 expenses and think long term of how much is college actually going to cost me? And do I have a degree that's going to lead to high wages in the workforce? But dude, a lot of people at that age even have the mental capacity to think that far ahead or the desire to. Because I mean, I think anybody graduating high school is not thinking about how much they're going to owe. They, they think, okay, I'll figure that out later. I just want to go to college. And that's on the parents. That's on the parents who are listening to the show to tell their kids that, hey, it's not smart to borrow six figures to go to college, especially if you know, you're getting an English degree. Would you say it's a little bit on the schools as well? Oh, yeah, but they're there to rip you off. And I, I think that is more important to know, too, is, is how school, the cost of college has increased. The cost 
to borrow for college has increased. And no one's talking about this. That's what I want to know. Like, and it's it's growing. Like, why is it so expensive to even borrow for college at six, seven percent? I've seen student loans at nine percent. And, you know, most of them are backed by the federal government as well. Why are we charging these kids six, seven, eight percent to go to school? Where is all that profitability that colleges are making, not only on student education, but on on college sports? It's paying for those teachers, man. We've seen Scott Galloway, the NYU professor. He makes a couple million a year just going there and teaching a couple classes at NYU. But I do agree with you, though, Matt, and there is so many resources out there when you're planning for college that it should be part of some sort of application process, but understanding the, what your overall cost of education is going to be. We now know, you know, the average, and it's so easy to find, of what a projected salary is going to be like for an entry-level position at what you're ever going to major in as well. So, like, we can do a simple projection, you know, of what, how long it's going to even take you to pay off this loan with your projected income. And we can have a pretty good understanding. Sure, it's not going to be perfect, um, but at least it can avoid you leaving college with this huge amount of debt that's going to maybe even hurt your confidence. Like it's not even just not even your pocketbook, but feeling like you're under, you know, this just pressure of this debt for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And it's just going to hurt you from really accumulating wealth. I don't understand how a person who graduates college um, who has a $1,500 student loan payment is supposed to ever buy a house when they're getting an entry-level job at what i don't care what you know unless they're a doctor i mean doctors even we work with tons of doctors and 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 when they're in residency and fellowship they're still struggling to get out of debt and all the way up until many years in their career how are they supposed to ever buy a house when you have a, a such a large student loan payment you're not and, and you can't have fun i mean when you're after you graduate college your first job you know your 20s your early 30s should be going out with your coworkers after work, you know, getting a couple of drinks, networking. Um, networking. But if you're constantly, you know, budgeting or worried because you got to make your student loan payment, that's that's no way to, you know, live your life. So when it when it comes to school, you get the cheapest education possible. It's it's more about how hard you work after school. See, and when all the media is talking about how the government should pay off people's Student loans, like I, I don't have, I, I don't even want to go down that road because, like, I think that probably brings up emotional people have a lot of feelings on that, and I really don't have that strong of a feeling either way. I think the 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 true problem lies within the colleges that are charging this much for education. Yeah, and I think it just can be managed and regulated a little bit better. Like, let's just all, I think we can all agree to that at least. Like that, these prices are going up so exponentially. Interest rates are growing up, and no one's even questioning it. And these kids are being left with these huge amounts of debt with no guidance. And then you know what happens? They get a credit card and go back to, to Wealth Destroyer 1 and then start charging on a credit card because all of their money is going to paying student loans. Yep, that's how it happens. Then you have credit card debt and student loan debt. You know, and one thing that's kind of been taken away when I see people get accepted to colleges now, for me at least, I'm kind of like, well, why wouldn't they accept you? They want your money. Doesn't everybody, every college want to accept as many people as possible to fill those seats? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a good way to look at it. Besides, I mean, the top 1% of institutions where there's too many applicants for... Um, and they want certain criteria. Yeah, for the pool. But yeah, for the most part, especially, you know, on the state school side, they're pretty much going to accept anybody. They want the money. All right, let's get into uh, Wealth Destroyer number three. Spending too much of your income on a house or a car, are there any metrics that you could use when seeing how much a house you could afford and then integrating the car payment into that as well? 
Yeah, there are some really great rules of thumb um, when we're looking at looking at purchasing a house. The first one that I like to use is the maximum of your basically your total housing expense shouldn't be more than 20% of your gross monthly income. So, you know, you could take if you're single or if you're married, take your total gross monthly income times that by 20% and your ho total housing expense shouldn't be more um, than that dollar amount. So that's just a one really easy way to figure out, you know, can you afford this house? One thing I like to add to that though as well, because when you go to apply for a mortgage, a lot of people maybe not running the calculation or using a calculator to find much how much they can afford. They're going to go get pre-approved from a mortgage lender. The mortgage lender is going to tell you, basically, they're going to go up to 50% of your income of what your max approval is. So they're not looking out for what you can afford based off of, you know, a metric or a rule of thumb. It's just the most that they feel you can borrow and which might not lead to great success financially. Yeah, the pity ratio is great. Um, it's, it's my favorite. And that's what you're talking about, keeping it around 20%. One kind of thing on that, though, is if you do live in uh, California or New York State, um, property prices are a little bit higher. So you can go up a little bit more. Um, but for the most part, you probably should be below 25%. I think that's pretty safe. As for the car thing, I don't really have a good rule of thumb on cars, but like my own mental rule of thumb with people is whatever your annual salary is, you probably shouldn't be buying a car that's more than your annual salary. So let's take, let's say you make $50,000, you probably shouldn't be driving a $65,000 SUV, which I know a lot of people do. It's not balanced. Yeah, it's not balanced at all. You're putting more, too much of your eggs in the car basket. You're not in the, you know, Tahoe market. You're in the uh, Kia market at, at that kind of salary level. And then as you go up the income chain, I mean, it becomes easier to afford nice cars. But again, everybody doesn't need to afford a Ferrari. Like just because you're making, you know, three, four hundred thousand a year, it doesn't mean you need to own a Ferrari. I mean, I know Kim Kardashian and Kanye West and all those people you see on TV do it, but they're billionaires and, you know, you're just a working guy. And that's also for optics. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it doesn't also mean we've seen famous people drive Priuses, right? I mean, it's you need to have it all relative. But I think another way to answer this question of how much to avoid or how much to actually be spending on a house or a car is to work backwards. How much should you be saving, right? You want that at least 10% of that net income to be saved per month. You want that even probably closer to 20%. Work backwards. First, pay yourself, save, make sure you're funding. We've talked about retirement accounts, 401k accounts, IRA accounts. So work backwards and setting up those savings accounts to seeing how much you got left over to spend on what you want. That's going to give you a really good idea, you know, for the kind of like the car um, question as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that you're always really good at doing with your clients too, Josh, is, you know, creating the three buckets, right? Discretionary spending, non-discretionary spending, and then your savings. Start with your savings then find out what your non-discretionaries are that you're going to have that you're not going to be able to change and then work on your discretionaries, what you can control. Yeah, absolutely. Food and expense and so we, forth. We, I mean, we can call that the 50, 30, 20 or like the use the bucket strategy like you had just um, talked about as well. I think that's a really good strategy to, to figuring out your, your monthly you know budget. So that 20 to 25% that you're talking about for the pity does not include the car payment then? No, it doesn't. But you could kind of use in a way debt to income as well. To kind of see how much of a car you can afford. What are they going on debt to income? Joshua, is it like below 30% you kind of want to be? Yeah, you probably want to be below 30%. And in, in Southern California, it's hard because housing is just more expensive. Right. Um, but I mean, that's, that's a good goal to strive for. 
How did you guys approach this? So, you know, you guys have recently purchased houses. I mean, how did you guys approach this strategy? I just looked at my spreadsheet and said, man, it's really expensive to buy in California. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I did the, exactly what we're talking about. So I'm sharing, you know, my experience with taking first starting with what our gross monthly income was, you know, breaking it down to what that net income is, especially with factoring in 401k savings, using that strategy of taking 28% of the monthly gross income to seeing how much I can afford for the house and making sure even with some of the other expenses that come with the house that I'm under that. And that's really how I calculated what I could afford or me and my wife could afford for our new purchase. Yeah, I did the exact same thing Josh did. Um, you know, try to keep that pity ratio in the, in the 20s, um, which we did, which was nice. Um, but then again, I mean, the other key here is, you know, Josh and I are both in our mid 30s, not to give away our age. And we both just purchased our first home. I know Josh had a condo previously, but we waited a long time. If you know, don't put pressure on, on your kids or, or people to get a home in their 20s because they're probably not ready financially. And then they get into financial trouble that way. Yeah, and it leads to people start to want things and not really necessarily need them. You get that that problem with a car or a nicer house or any of that. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get into you know that destroyer number four. Here's one that might bring up some controversy though, and we we do see this: uh, a spouse that spends aggressively. What are some strategies that you can put into your marriage to possibly avoid this? Yeah, I think first off, this is something that probably creates a lot of divorces too, right? Is arguments over finances, one spouse uh, spending too much, or even it could go the other way, right? Maybe uh, one spouse is too conservative, and it you know leads to lots of fighting and resentment. But the I think you know the the first strategy would probably be one you know don't criticize your spouse, don't go go after them and be aggressive because all that's going to do is lead to a fight and you don't want that and most likely probably the best scenario for you is to get some kind of marriage financial counseling which have become popular over the last half decade right yeah absolutely i mean there's people who specialize in that Um, financial planning like that we do could help a lot but you know for the most part you're probably going to want to bring a professional in if it's causing a rift in your marriage and if you're just starting and you want to try something i mean i definitely always like to start with awareness right if someone's spending too aggressively bringing that awareness understanding where that money's going you know using the softwares that we've talked about on previous episodes to categorize the spending and bringing that to life printing it out on a piece of paper putting it out on the tv right um maybe even implementing like a money day between you and your spouse to go over all of this stuff because i think i feel like a lot of even people we've talked to you know it, it gets pushed under the rug we don't want to talk about it because it's not a fun conversation but if we can you know make it more positive and make it more about what the future goals are about you know i think that you know it can be definitely managed because we know it happens and we can still find success in financial plans even if one spouse does spend aggressively we just got to make sure we have a plan for that and a budget for it I'm 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 all in on this strategy that you were just talking about josh i think numbers don't lie so if you have really good, let's say, personal finance books and records, and you can tell where each dollar is being spent and where each goes, whether it's house expense or utilities or food or clothing or wherever it may go, you may have the perception that one spouse is being too conservative or too aggressive. But until you actually have the numbers, you, you really you may just be working off an opinion of some of the things, the number of packages you see being delivered to your house. But actually, if you kind of got to the nuts and bolts of it and you had actual books and records, it might not be as bad as you think and, or it might be better, 
I think you know having those numbers could probably be pretty effective. Yeah, and and the other thing too, I think the big thing on this podcast, one takeaway for you listeners is when it comes to your personal finances, in my opinion, don't sweat the small stuff. I know $100 here and there adds up, but really you should be sweating the $1,000 decisions, the $100,000 decisions, because that's where you really bury yourself financially. So if you know your spouse is maybe spending $100 here, $100 there, and you don't like it, it's probably not worth the fight worry about the thousand dollar the hundred thousand dollar um spending problems boulders not pebbles exactly yeah and you know what you could hire a bookkeeper for a lot less than you can hire a counselor so i mean consider bringing in a bookkeeper to get your facts before you you know you may want to consider getting a counselor because a counselor is going to add up too true definitely uh the last one is the lifestyle creep i have no idea what this means so matthew why don't you let us know what what is a lifestyle creep yeah, so lifestyle creep is um, as you go throughout your life and your career, um, generally for most people, they have an upward trajectory of income. And that happens, you know, between your really late 30s into your early 50s or kind of like your peak earning years, right? And a lifestyle creep happens when you increase your expenses in proportionate to your raises. You should also be increasing your savings. So example, you get a big raise at work, you know, 20, 30, 40,000, whatever it is. And instead of increasing your savings, you upgrade to a Tesla from a Toyota. That's lifestyle creep. Yeah. And it needs to be relative. Like you said, income goes up, savings needs to go up. Investing needs to go up. You know, maybe even insurance. Wealth is growing. Ding, ding, ding. We need to increase the insurance as well. So all of those things need to be increasing relatively instead of just you getting in a raise at work means now you have more discretionary income. That's just not true. And I think a lot of new um, 401k platforms have, you know, some things in there that will, as you get older, it'll auto increase, or as you get a raise, it will auto increase. But for the most part, you got to go in there and, and increase those and you got to do it. At the beginning of the year, Josh and I always bump our 401k contributions up. Just cost the company more money and match, huh? We, uh, we motivate each other. You going to do it? Yeah. You going to do it? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> it. I mean, it's so important. I mean, you know, the the more you save, the younger you are, the less you'll have to save in the later life and the better lifestyle you'll have. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's all you're going to be able to live off in when you retire is Social Security, maybe, and then some savings. Yeah. Yep. We got a, We got a plan now. All right. Let's get into the last part of the show. Uh, let's go into RPA Recommends. Uh, I'll kick this one off this time on the recommends. Uh, this one I have Uplift Desk. Oh, come on, Brent. That was mine. Did you really have that one? Yeah, I was going to do the oh, same. So just man. take it. We'll both give okay, our advice. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll both pull this in for today. So because we're doing a hybrid work, right, we're working in both the office and at home. Matthew and I have both needed to upgrade our desk at the home office. And sitting all day long just really is not good for your body decreases blood flow and it's really hard just to sit there all day it's hard on your bones and so we bought an uplift desk which is you know it's an auto elevate and an auto go back down and and it's been just very helpful to work part of the day with uh by being able to stand yeah i agree i mean i can't believe i, I actually kind of had a feeling when i was thinking about mine i'm like oh maybe Brent's gonna go with the uplift too but yeah amazing product um first of all Haley, my wife super jealous she's in there watching me on my standing desk She's like oh you're standing and sitting she, she kind of wants one now first of all it's a sleek looking product right so it, it doesn't look bad in your house and um it's just really nice to be able to stand and work 
I've actually been standing for all my client meetings now. And then when I'm doing kind of like hardcore work or writing um, number crunching, I'm sitting. I don't know how, how you like to do it, but for me, that's kind of been working the last few days. Well, the, fir- the first thing for me is like when you're starting off your day just standing, you don't, you, it's so much better to start your work several hours just being able to be standing up because you've been sleeping all, all night, right? So if you're starting your day standing, your body has at least some ability to get that blood flow going. Yeah, standing early morning, I agree. And, you know, Uplift, I think, uh, from what I've seen, is probably one of the nicest desks. You know, there's a lot of these companies that are coming out here, but for its reasonably cost, and uh, it works really well. The Uplift desks, you can add a hammock underneath them. Do you guys have that? No, I do not. <laughs> I do not. But they're, they're, they're a cool product, and, and I've found it very useful, just the ability to stand during the day. Yeah, and then lots of different price points, too. I mean, I think you can make a $5,000 desk, or you can make a $500 desk. Yeah. So um, whatever you're looking for, it fits your budget, and it's a really great product. I think that was kind of my point. They have so many accessories. I have a little bit of FOMO. I haven't got mine yet, but... You'll get yours soon. Soon, 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 soon. Uh, rec- recommends. Uh, just... We opened the show with talking about LAFC. I recommend going out there and looking at your favorite musical artists, your favorite sporting event as things start to open up. Something to get excited about. I know we talked a lot about just, you know, kind of planning for uh, the future and, and hap- some, finding some happiness spending. I'm really excited for this weekend and, and just some for some things to come in the future. So get out there and, you know, go look at tickets or to anything that you really enjoy entertainment wise. And uh, I think that it's going to be fun. Are concerts coming back? I've seen a lot of the concert talk or I, now that like we were even looking at tickets on StubHub, there are a lot of concerts that are being scheduled for like fall, um, winter and early spring next year. So um, like you can even go out there and buy them and they're scheduled. So they're, I think, coming back, especially outdoors. So well, a couple of listeners reached out and had a question, a follow-up question. Uh, did you get your new phone yet? I haven't got my new phone. I'm not yet. No. So you still have the line going through the middle of your phone and I, I you're do. still waiting. I do. Yeah. I'm stubborn. Okay. So yeah. It's more you, principled than If anything. you want, you want an advisor who's going to make sure that, you know, <laughs> you're really good with spending expenses and Staying within budget, Josh is your guy. <laughs> Josh is for sure your guy. He won't pull the trigger on any expenses. I'm shocked he's going to LAFC on Saturday. No, no, no. <laughs> See, happiness, man. That's going to bring me a lot of happiness. <laughs> but the phone with the line in it. <laughs> it looks like a lightsaber. I like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as we kind of close this thing out, as advisors, we, we love helping people, and that's why we're here. That's why we do the show. This is why we do what we do. If you'd like to schedule an appointment with any of us, please go to rpawealth.com and schedule a complimentary consultation with any of your favorite podcasters here on the show. You can also download our ebook from our website. And if you like the show notes, please go to retirementplanplaybook.com. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you. Thank you. RPA Wealth Management is a state-registered investment advisor located in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. RPA Wealth Management may only transact business in those states and jurisdictions in which it is registered or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from registration requirements. A copy of RPA Wealth Management's current disclosure statement, Form ADV Part 1, containing RPA Wealth Management's business operations, services, and fees is available by accessing the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website. RPA Wealth Management will provide 
provide Form ADV Part 2A from Brochure and 2B Brochure Supplement to interested parties upon request. Information provided on this podcast should not be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to acquire or dispose of any investment or engage in any other transaction. RPA Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personal investment advice or financial planning advice through its podcast. RPA Wealth Management podcasts are intended for information and educational purposes only.